Byron would be opening the scriptures to us. I hope you'll come then. Romans chapter 8 this morning. Do please pray daily for our upcoming revival, and please be with us on Easter Sunday morning. I believe it'll be a great Sunday service, and I believe that you would miss much if you were not here. So please plan to be with us Easter Sunday morning. Message from Will Rice, special music with Cena and Tim and Brittany Thompson. So please plan to be with us on Easter Sunday. For now, we speak to you from Romans chapter 8, verse number 19. Paul writes, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons or sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what is a man, or what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So reads verses 19 through 25 of Romans chapter 8. Last week when we were together, we talked about, I believe, several very important uh, truths, seldom mentioned truths, but nonetheless very important. I called your attention to them before we move too far, just as reminders. In verse number 19, the phrase earnest expectation, uh, literal translation would be to stand on your tiptoes. It's someone who's looking with such anticipation. They're looking forward to it. They've heard about it. They know something of it. And so they're looking, and the word, the ideal carries with it someone who's standing on their tiptoes, looking and, and expecting and wanting something to take place. In this case, it's, a, it's creation. Creation does that and is waiting for something. And that something, note carefully in verse number 19, is for the manifestation or the identif identifying of the sons of God. Now, even the whole earth as it is, is waiting to hear and to be fully aware of all the people who are really truly God's people. This creation, that's what verse 19 is saying, that this whole creation is waiting for the identification, the manifestation of God's people. And then verse number 20, it says, for the creature or creation was made subject to vanity, or the word is futility of emptiness, not willingly. That is, a creation didn't do this in just in a humble way, but it was done this way by the work of a subjecting of the Lord Creator. And He did it. He's the one who made it happen. He subjected creation to this vanity or futility, and He did it when Adam and Eve sinned. So when this world sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, the whole creation, as it were, came under a futile effort of uh, what we call emptiness and, and uh, lacking in its fulfilling of its design. What it was designed for, what its purpose was, would never be fulfilled, would never be realized until God did another work. So at the same time that man messed up in sin, where he would never be all God wanted him to be, and it would take another work of God to get him there, 
creation itself was under the same circumstances. It would never be what it ought to be until once again God came on the scene. And so consequently, it's somewhat of an object lesson to the world. The world is seemingly more caring about trees in our, you know, on our roadways and whatever than they are about human beings, about babies. There are people who spend more money on dogs and cats than they'd ever dare spend on their old family. Uh, as I read to you a few weeks ago in this service, I read to you about the lady in Louisville, Kentucky, who left $78,000 in her estate to take care of her cats. You'll forgive me, and then left whatever was left over for the Baptist church. Uh, I want to tell you, there wasn't anything left over. The time you buy the most expensive cat stuff and put it in this bowl that looked like it was made for a queen, and you feed them that way every day, and the guy who feeds them gets $10,000 at a feeding, there ain't a lot left. You know, and that's the way those systems work. You have to pay the guy to put the stuff in the, in the bowl, and he gets about 50 times more of what the food costs. That's called, a, that's called maintenancing the estate, and you get a lot of money in that. Uh, so my point is, in these cases of people being so environmentally oriented and they're so interested in taking care of and then they're letting human beings pass by the wayside. Their, their thinking is that they're working to restore this creation. They're, they're making this world a better place. I've got news for them now. can save them a lot of time and a lot of money. It ain't going to happen until God manifests his children. It just ain't going to happen. And when God brings back, as it were, the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and in all the sons of God are made manifest, then creation, then nature as we know it, will get back on track to be exactly what it was designed for in the first place. Look at verse 21, Romans 8 and verse 21, because the creature or the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Verse 21 succinctly says that not until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and not until the sons of God are made manifest will this world, this created world itself be delivered from the bondage of corruption that it got into when Adam and Eve sinned. That's what it's saying. And it's not going to happen until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And that's what the verse of Scripture just keeps hammering away at. In verse 19, for instance, when it uses the word expectation. So the expectation in verse number 19 is based on the assurances of verse 21, shall be delivered. So that's why the creation, as it were, stands on its tiptoes and keeps looking out there because it has this promise from God. And by the way, every promise of God that you have, you can stand on your tiptoes and expect it to happen too. And so creation is standing up looking for God's word to be absolutely fulfilled. Because he said, at that point shall this creation be delivered. And so creation stands up and looks for that event. So in a sense, they're looking for the Lord to turn just as much as you and I are looking for the world to turn. I recognize Paul's personifying creation. I mean, I'm not stupid the context would indicate that he's he's personifying he's making creation as if it, a person and he's saying creation longs for the lord to turn, return and and creation is eager about this for one reason because creation knows that when the sons of god are made manifest verse 21 it shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption and boy don't you know they want to get rid of that just like you and i want to get rid of this world of sin that we live in and so consequently, we'll be changed when the Lord comes. But this text of Scripture is literally saying creation will be changed. And creation wants to be changed as much as you and I want to be changed. And consequently, that's the wording Paul uses. Notice the phrase. We'll spend much of our time on it this morning in verse 21. It's that phrase, the bondage of corruption. 
First off, I don't want you to forget that this took place because of sin. Let me take you back so you can remember it. It's in Genesis chapter 3. That's our text. Genesis chapter 3 is the reference point. And in chapter 3 of, of Genesis, verse 14, begins by saying, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, and what he did, this, this thing he did, was he... Uh, tempted Eve to take of the tree that God had said to her explicitly, do not take up. She took of it. She did so because of the urging of the serpent. And God says to the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed, and underline the word, above. Cursed above. All cattle and above every beast of the field upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And then look at verse number 17. In verse 17, he said unto Adam, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. The point is, creation was cursed when man sinned. And a serpent was cursed above all. That is, the point I make of that is that all creation was cursed. All living, moving, active people, beings were cursed. But the fact is, the serpent was cursed above all. And the fact of the matter is, that's what he's talking about here in Romans chapter 8, in that they're under the, as we call it, curse or bondage of corruption. And so I say to you, everything that you see, everywhere you look, there is this evidence of this process. Somebody wrote it thus. I did it well. I like the way they phrase it. He says, quote, There is an impurity, a deformity, and an infirmity which the creation has contracted by the fall, the sin of man, and it is everywhere present. He's absolutely right. As pretty as everything is, and boy, there's nobody loves to see flowers any more than I do in the spring, how beautiful they are. But also, there are so many things about them that they won't last. You cut a flower, take it into a house, and put it in a, in a, a thing of water, and it'll last a few days, but then it dies. That's the bondage of corruption. It, it just can't live. And, and, we're, and, and the point made is that there is this kind of thing, that things, no matter how you look at them, you can even leave them on the vine, and they die off. So somebody says, no, it's because you cut it loose from life. You leave it on the vine, it'll die off, because everything's dying. This last week, I had the occasion to drive out through the country two or three different times. One day, we drove to Terre Haute's hospital to uh, take uh, Judy's mother down to see her sister, who was uh, gravely ill. And as we did, we drove through the country. And one of the things that, that I noticed along the, the roadways was the trees that have just died off. They're just dead as a hammer. I mean, I'm not just talking about dead from winter months. I'm talking about trees that won't come out in the spring. And, and they've just they've died, and, and the bark has fallen off of them, and they, they look horrible. And it just, everywhere you look, there's this death and decay issue. Everywhere. Uh, I, I get sick. I don't know about you, but I get sick when I watch newscasts. I got sick walking the other night on, on uh, evening news. And they had this big, uh, this great big um, earth moving machine that had this big claw-like thing came out. And they're tearing down apartments up in Indianapolis, brick and mortar. I mean, they got 20 or 30 apartment 
sections up there. And they're tearing that all up. Now, my point is this. Think of all the brick and mortar that's going to be now dumped into some, some garbage dump somewhere and going to take up space. And the only reason is because these buildings deteriorated. And after a while, we're going to run out of space because we keep building them and then tearing them down and building them and returning them down. And there's one reason, because corruption. And we are this whole society, creation, men, women, boys, girls, animals, things that are living upon the earth are all in a process of winding down and running down. And we included. All of us. All of us. All of us have a, a, a number of days to which we'll live and there'll be no more. And then these bodies will see a corruption like they've never seen before. They see corruption right now. If you got up this morning and you didn't have any aches, you better thank the Lord. Your day's coming. You will. You will. It just goes with the bodies. These bodies were never made for eternity. These are bodies for time. And they only last for a short while. You better take care of what you got while you got it because you won't have it long. This is just for time. You get another one for eternity. And you know the Lord when you trust the Lord as Savior. It's in, in essence that you have at that point, he puts in an order for a new body for you. And what he does, he gives you a glorified body when you get there. So my point is this. Everything about this life has that testimony that it is under the corruption and the bondage of corruption. And it can't get out of it. There's nothing you can do to change that. Oh, you can get saved and assure your future, but you can't change the moment. So there's two or three things you need to understand and get a good grip on so you can help other people. One, you need to understand that sin alienates us from God. That's the first effect of a bondage of corruption. It alienates us from God. There's this vast canyon of space between God and His holiness and man and His sin. It's... It, it's it should have dawned on us, and I'm sure it did to many, in Genesis chapter 3 when uh, the Bible says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. That thing spoke volumes when that happened because what that was all about and what that was dealing with was the alienation that sin brings into people's lives. When a person is born into this world, they are born alienated from God for one reason, because we're under the curse of the fall. And the fact of the matter is, we have to get that taken care of. Paul wrote about it in Ephesians chapter 4, and he wrote it in verse 17. He says, This I say, therefore, testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity or futility, and it's a part of corruption, Futility or vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. All those aspects are things of corruption, the bondage to which we are involved. And the fact of the matter is everybody is involved with it. You see, when he talks about in this context the wages of sin is death, he's talking about eternal death. When he talks about these words in the scriptures, Paul wrote about them, John wrote about them, he speaks about hell and he speaks about the lake of fire. Those are only physical places that represent one singular truth, and that is that when man dies, he is alienated from God forever if he died without Christ. And that's what they testify to. And by the way, it's a 
amazing thing to me that being separated from God is not a feeling as people like Robert Shuler try to say, oh, it's just a feeling, you know. Let me tell you something. When you get into hell, you call home and tell them it's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. Being in hell is just a feeling. No, it's not a, just a feeling. It's a fact. There is a place. Luke 16 makes it very clear. There is a place where men, women, boys, and girls go when they die in this life or die off from this life without having believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Men, women, boys, and girls who are of age go to a devil's hell. The Bible is crystal clear on that. And don't let the crystal cathedral preacher tell you otherwise. Also, something else. That sin not only alienates us from God, it does something else. And it has its corrupting effect. It enslaves us to ourselves. Enslaves us to ourselves. What I mean by that is, is what Mark chapter 7 says. Far from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and defile the man. What's he saying? He's saying, look, it's not outside, it's inside. It's in you. And what happens is sin does that. Sin has that effect by virtue of being in a person of enslaving them to itself. You talk about self-centeredness, this is the epitome of it. We're enslaved to ourselves. Whatever I want, I get. Paul spoke of it in terms of the works of the flesh. He talked about the works of the flesh and he did so by saying that in essence that the self-life operates through your body. Your body does what self-sinful sinnerness wants it to, and therefore it's, uh, it, it participates in all the sinful pleasures of life. And the fact is, Paul wrote about it in Ephesians 4 when he says that ye put off concerning the former conversation or the former behavior, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. It's corrupted. And everything about this old self, sinful self, pursues sinful pleasure. Has no interest in what's right. Has every interest in satisfying its desires. And there's where Paul says you have to draw a line. You have to make up your mind that every magnet of this life pulls you against that which is right. And what you have to do is draw a line and say, I have the Holy Spirit inside of me if I'm saved, and the Word of God condemning it if I've read it. And thirdly, I know full well that I can abstain from every appearance of evil. I can. Now, I may not, but I can. So it's my choice. I get the deciding vote on every magnetic pull that this world puts upon this self-centered person. And so Paul would say to us that don't forget, you're not only your sin alienates you from God, but it also will enslave you to yourself. There's a third thing it does. Not only alienates us from God, not only enslaves us to self, but it also irritates and some kind eliminates our relationships with other people. It not only alienates you from God and it not only enslaves you to self, but sin will often irritate or in some cases eliminate your relationship with other people. Every sin that you've ever committed or that I've ever committed is the asserting of self against either God or other people. Every sin you've ever committed is either asserting of yourself against God or other people. 
And when you violate those, you're, you're just pushing self. That's all we're doing. You see, the Lord knew our propensity to this, and he set forth a very clear statement in Mark chapter 14. Listen to this. Mark 14, verse number 30. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. What he's saying is, there is very clearly set forth what we call God's order. And God's order concerning this is that you love God first and foremost. You put others, which in this case is neighbors, second. And that leaves obviously one slot unfilled. And that is for self. And you take up the rear. God first, others second, and yourself third. And what that sets very clearly is every time you sin, you reverse that order. Every single time. Every sin you've ever committed, you reverse the order. And it doesn't matter where you commit it. You can commit it in an auditorium of a church on Sunday morning. Uh, I was at ball game yesterday. You can commit it on a basketball court when you get all bent out of shape and angry and mad and whatever. All you're doing is reversing the order. You're not putting God first, putting yourself first. You think you're more important than the rules, regulations, or, or all, all the other things, and, and, and we, just, we just change the whole dimension, see? It'll happen anywhere. It'll happen at the work site. You can be busy and working, and things are happen. They're not fair. It's not right. And then you can get bent out of shape, throw a wrench, and hit somebody in the back of the head and be fired from your job. Do something real stupid. But the reason you did it is because you reversed the order. If you put the Lord first, you put the Lord first and others second, giving everybody a break, giving everybody a chance, being, being not judge and jury all in one shot and saying, well, this is what they meant, this is what they did, and I'm mad and I'm angry, and you, you just won't get anywhere. What it happens is it happens every single time the same old way. We reverse the order. Let me tell you and give you a definition. William Temple, I don't know him, but I know he was a preacher. And William Temple wrote this as a definition for what we call the original sin. You'll forgive me, and I'm not a great theologian, but it's a sorry definition for, for original sin. I'm reading it because it fits my point, and, and you can see that. I think it makes a great point about relationships with other people. It makes a sorry definition for original sin. He wrote, quote, I am the center of the world I see. You ever met any guy like that? I am the center of the world that I see. Then he goes on. Where the whole horizon is, is depends on where I'm standing. Don't you love a guy like this? Education may make my self-centeredness less disastrous by widening my horizon of interest. So far, it is like climbing a tower which widens the horizon for physical vision while leaving me still the center and the standard of all reference points. Now, maybe he's right. Maybe it makes a good definition of original sin. But what it better does is it illustrates sin, how it irritates and sometimes eliminates good relationships. Because when you, and by the way, a person like that uh, will not adjust well to other people. And just let me throw this in. And may God help you if you marry such a one. May God help you. If the person you're married to thinks they're the center of the universe and they think everything ought to go right all the time, may God help you. Let me give you a little simple secret. Nothing ever always goes right. Nothing. 
And if you thought it was just you, you self-centered, arrogant thing, you, who you think you are, it goes bad for all of us. I mean, if you talk about a bad week, I could rank a few. But my weeks aren't any worse than your weeks are. It's just my perspective it's worse. You look at my week and you say, hey, that's a pretty good week, I thought. To me, it was horrible. I look at yours and say, man, you had gravy all week. You had, you had it made. Yeah. You see, it's perspective. What our problem is, we think just like this guy thinks. We measure where the horizon is from where I'm standing. And what I'm saying to you is, you know how you got that? That's a sinful, perceptional possession. That's part of the corruption that you're in bondage to. You don't think right. Paul said your mind is corrupted. You don't think right. You think self-centeredly. You think self alone is what makes everything's perspective right, and it does not. This is what perspective makes everything right. And I don't necessarily, it doesn't always, I don't always come in line with it. And I have to get right about that. But this is always right. Always right. No if and buts and no occasion when it might be shaded gray. It's always black and white. And when I take my life and line it up beside that thing, I can be assuring to you that it is me who has to bring mine in line. It's not God made some mistake and I have to help him correct it. To do so is to be and fall into the very trap of the very problem I'm talking about, self-centeredness. Sinful self corrupts the way we think. And people just get intoxicated with thinking wrong. Who are you and who am I to think that life ought to be easier and better than it is? Who are we? I mean, can you think about, and Brian brought it up in Sunday school this morning, about all the things our Lord Jesus Christ did, not for himself, mind you, but for us. All the abuse, all the mockings, all the, all the things that were hurled at him, all the time that he was abused and misused and they wanted to, to kill him, destroy him, and he didn't do it for self. He did it for you and me. Led as a lamb before his shirts is dumb, he openeth not his mouth. Never said a word, never complained, never whined, never moaned, never groaned, never told anybody it wasn't fair, never got on his knees in the garden and yelled at his heavenly father and said, you stupid idiot, what are you doing? Never did that. Never lost his consciousness of what he was here for. Not my will, but thine. And let me tell you something. If you can keep conscious of that very fact, your life on this earth will be a whole lot easier. Not my will, but thine. Not my will, but thine. But you know what that does? See, that runs against the bondage of corruption. You're not, you're not born to think that way. You're born to think me first, you second, and everybody else third. And what the Bible is saying, when our Lord bowed in Gethsemane, he said, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Really setting a model for the rest of us to say, if the rest of you would always put the Lord first, you'd be shocked to how good and how well your own life would be in the end. Now, it wouldn't necessarily be easier. Oh, we're not talking easy here. Easy really shouldn't even be a word in the vocabulary of a believer. You know that? There's really nothing easy about the Christian life. And almost insulting to the Lord to think so. It's not easy. You find it easy to pray? 
You find it easy to, to open the Bible every single day and read and read and read and meditate and meditate and meditate and then get up and say, okay, now I'm ready to go obey. Uh, it, it's not easy. It's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. It takes time. In the song we have in our songbook, Take Time to Be Holy, that's why most folks aren't, because they don't take the time. It's, it's not easy. But nobody said it was. Where did it say it's easy? Show me chapter and verse where it says it's easy. Let me tell you, as simple as it may be, rather than easy, it is because of what he did and we don't have to do. That's what makes it as simple as it is. But our problem is we're still caught up in this thing about how sin affects us. It not only alienates us from God, it not only enslaves us to ourself, but it also, also very much irritates or in some cases actually eliminates our relationships with other people because we become so self-centered. The point is man like creation is in bondage to corruption and it affects every single aspect of his or her life. That's the bottom line. I read just this week in Genesis chapter 6 concerning Noah. It said in chapter 6 verse 11, The earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. You know why we got the mess we got in this country? It's not because we have bad politicians. We have bad politicians because... Typically, they're sinners, and they need a Savior, and they're living self-centered lives. Their minds are corrupted. That's basically the reason for that. But you know why we got all this other mess, violence and wickedness and ungodliness? You know why? Because of sin and how sin has this corrupting effect on all of us. It corrupts people. It corrupts their thinking. It corrupts their attitudes. It corrupts everything about them. Job said in Job chapter 17, My breath is corrupt. My days are extinct. And the grave is ready for me. He wasn't talking about halitosis either when he's talking about his breath. He's talking about that succinctness about who he is and what he's all about. My very breath is corrupt. I'm dying. And I'm not only dying in a physical way, there's a certain sense in which spiritually men are already dead by virtue of being born sinners and that corruption continues. Sin, it's absolutely done a number on all of us. It affects every aspect of our life. By the way, we sing about it. We just don't think about it when we sing it. Let me show you a song. You don't have to turn to it, but listen to this. We sing about this very change. We sing about Romans chapter 8, Truth. And I'm amazed how many songs in the songbook relate Bible truth. And so often we just didn't see it. We just didn't catch it until we come to preach it or talk about it or whatever. Here in chapter or chapter, this is page number 96. It's the song, Abide With Me. Here it is. Henry Light wrote it. He said, Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee. Help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Verse 2. Swift to its close ebbs our life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim. Its glories pass away. Change, change and decay in all around I see. Oh, thou who changest not, abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? 
who like thyself my guide and stay can be through cloud and sunshine oh abide with me verse 4 hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes shine through the gloom point me to the skies heaven's morning breaks earth's vain shadows flee in life in death O Lord abide with me his point in verse number three is change and decay all around I see everywhere I look he's saying I see what Romans chapter 8 is talking about there's a changing creation that's changing from what it is to less glorious and to eventually it'll pass off the scene it's interesting growing older and in the process running down and decaying the good news is is this song sets forth there's somebody who does not change oh thou who changest not so the secret in a changing circumstance like you and I are faced with under the curse of sin and a creation in which we live that is under the curse and is also in that process of winding down, decaying, the secret is, is to be connected to someone who does not change. And that's what the song is emphasizing. Abide with me. Have a right relationship with the Lord so that as everything changes, you may get up tomorrow morning and your world may change. Tomorrow night, you could be in the morgue. And everybody around you who touches your life's life will change. But with all that prospect, the secret is, abide with me. Have a relationship with the Lord so that in all this changing that's taking place, there'll be one thing that won't change. And that is, God's got in mind what God's doing. By the way, somebody said this, and I like it. Quote, I met an old friend a few days ago. He had changed so much, he didn't recognize me. I like that. That's the way I'm going to say it from now on. The fact is, we just don't like to think of ourselves changing. In fact, you get into a conversation very far and very deep, you'll find that people are concerned about life changes. It not only concerns them, in some cases it outrightly scares them. And I understand that. These changes and ultimately our death is more than a, a chemical change. It's a spiritual penalty. And don't you ever forget that. Death is a spiritual penalty. Don't forget Romans 5, 12. Death entered the world because of sin. And people die because of sin. When Adam sinned, the curse, the judgment, the corruption, the bondage passed on all men for that all have sinned. And don't you ever, ever forget that. But by the way, but after this, there is that. Look at verse number 21 again. Because the creature or the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Notice, from then into. From something into something. Here's the good news. It'll be corrupted or this corruption, bondage of corruption that it is now delivered to. One day it will be delivered from into, verse 21 says, the glorious liberty of the children of God. Somebody wrote a note and stuck it on a bulletin board and uh, somebody in a magazine took a picture of it. It says, I will live now for then and here for there. Short words, but makes good sense. I will live now for then and here for there. 
This particular verse, in the closing of verse 21, just reminds us again of the link between the believer's liberation from sin and all the consequences of sin and the liberation of the creation. But now look at verse 22 because it gives you the real insight to the text. Verse 22, for, this is continuing his argument, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. For we know. You may... You might ought to underline that because if you know Christ as Savior, that's talking about you. And what he's saying in the context of this this passage is we Christians really know why things are going the way they're going. We know why the trees are dying. We know why people are passing off the scene. We know all the background reason. We know the real reason why everything is doing and going the way it is. We have the answer. Oh, we don't. God does, and it's in His Word. Paul is writing, and he says, Under inspiration of God, for we all know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now. By the way, they think it's up to mankind to restore the planet to its original state. And to me, that's a sad thing. And let me just issue this word, and you can take it for whatever it's worth. But if I were you, I would not put any money into the environmental programs of our society. Not a single dime. Because it's the same thing as if somebody's trying to work out their own salvation and they won't do it God's way, they want to do it their way. So when you send money to an environmental group, they're going to put it into a way to try to restore the environment to its original pristine position, as the little quote in their philosophy book says. We want to put it back to its pristine position. I got news for you. You cannot put this creation back to its pristine position any more than you can save a sinner from his sins without the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Impossible. And you see, it turns out then to support such a program is almost like a work salvation for, for creation. How can I get creation to circumvent Jesus Christ coming back, manifesting the sons of God, and restoring the creation to its original design? I got an idea. Let's give a lot of money to environmental programs, and we'll make it what it ought to be, and we'll just leave God outside the door. Yeah, right. I got news for you. You can't make this what it ought to be any more than you can save a sinner and do it some other way than what God's already set forth in redemption. It cannot be done. And it's just as foolish to try one as it is the other for one simple reason in Paul's argument. Because they're tied together. The liberation of the sinner in the business of redemption and eventually the return of Christ so that the world gets to see all of them. They're all manifested. And this world being put back the way it was originally is all connected to this one thing. God doing it. And it ain't going to happen any other way. I don't care what president's sitting in office, and I don't care who's in the environmental department, and I don't care how many programs across this country raise billions of dollars to do it. It cannot happen. And so I say to you, the good thing is that you just let God do it in His timing. Let God work that out. Our energies, our interests ought to be put into things that we can do something about, and that is obedience to the divine commands of our Lord. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We can do that. We're not just that we can. We're commanded to go do that. And so that's something you can do. And that's something that would have an effect. And that is a good effect, by the way. It is important. And I encourage you in this point that you remember that it was a good creation when God created it. It is now a groaning creation because of the sin issue. 
And believers know more than the scientists know because we know what's wrong with creation and we don't have to go through all the rigmarole of science seminars and all that to find it out. We know what behind it all. It's a thing called sin. And sin corrupts. And uh, people who are sinners corrupt things. That's why you can take good people, put them in an office, and I say good people, and they can become bad people because they give in to greed. Over the last few weeks, and, 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 and it's just been amazing to me, and I hate this every time I hear it. Every time I hear something bad that happens on the news, my great concern is always, oh, this guy is not a Christian. Oh, this guy is not a church man. Interesting. You may have heard. They, they caught this guy, this, uh, what's what his name? What they, B, what's it? It's a bind, torture, and kill. BTA, B, BTK guy. They caught him out in Kansas. Wouldn't you know he's a church goer? And, and, and I mean by that, and it's not bad that he goes to church, but wouldn't you know that makes the news? He went to church. He worked in the Sunday school. He taught people the Bible. Did you just have to say that? I mean, good grief. Here's a guy who's been killing people for years and years and years and years and years, and the news makes one point about all that. One big point. He's a church man. Isn't that sad? Isn't it sad? It's sad that whatever he had religious-wise, wasn't enough to change his life. And it ought to be a warning to us that there's a lot of religion, but only there's one faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the true thing, the real, genuine thing. And it's not whether a person's religious, it's not whether they go to church, and it's not whether they teach Sunday school. It's what have they done with the Lord Jesus Christ and how real is Jesus Christ to them by their simple childlike faith that brought them into a right relationship with him? In this passage of Scripture, quickly before we leave, in verse number 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth. Every time I read that, I think of the burden to the whole creation that sin is. Sin is a real burden to our society. It really is. I mentioned a few weeks ago about these two young people, this boy and this girl, uh, who killed, the boy actually killed his mother, his grandfather, and uh, his grandmother. It's interesting because, in a sense, the state of Indiana bears blame for that. Remember me saying that? The very fact is because it was over gambling. This boy got addicted to gambling by the, the state of Indiana bringing gambling into the state and making it so easy to participate in. And by the boy's own statement said, I never thought about it until the state legalized it. I figured what they legalized must be good. And the boy gets into gambling, gets into such a debt of gambling, he can't get out. He doesn't know where to turn. He knows his family has money. And so what does he do? Kills his mother, his grandfather, and his grandmother, and takes their money and their credit cards and goes and tries to make more money to pay off his gambling debts in the state of Indiana. You tell me that sin doesn't multiply. Yeah, let me tell you what it does. Sin corrupts. Sin corrupts. And this is gambling, whether it be that kind of gambling or any other kind of gambling, it corrupts. And that's what it's done to our society. And I say to you that that's, that's an interesting phrase in verse 22 where it says that the whole creation is groaning and travailing. And by the way, look at the verse word in verse 22, in pain. Let me tell you something else that sin will do. Sin always brings pain. Always does. It hurts. It hurts. If we could just teach our children that sin hurts the way we teach them that fire burns, we'd be in great shape. Sin hurts. 
and it'll cause you pain. In Acts chapter 7, verse number 34, I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I am come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send thee into Egypt. That's a passage, a quote from Acts chapter 7, when that story was being told about the Israelites being down in Egypt. They were under pain and burden and all the kind of things that were working against them. And the Bible says these people were groaning. They were groaning. They were literally groaning and crying under the affliction, the pain that they were bearing. And God heard them. And the Bible says that God sent them a deliverer in the man of Moses. Let me tell you something. Just as surely as this earth is groaning, and and, uh, you can note next week we'll talk about verse 23 when we find out that we're groaning. You see verse 23? And not only they, talking about the whole creation in verse 22, but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, what? Groan. We're doing it. It's not just creation groaning. People are groaning. And they're groaning under the pain and the discomfort of of the burden of sin. And the consequence of that is some people know it and some people don't. Some people recognize it, some people don't. But I say this to you today. It's important that you and I Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. I was reading this week, and listen to me carefully as I close. I was thinking and studying this message and thinking about people who deny that they are sinners. And it just happened that I had run into a couple of instances where that had happened, where people had literally carried the idea that, oh, no, I don't, I don't think we're sinners. I don't think people are sinners. I don't, I don't believe that. And I, I got to thinking about that. How in the world they can deny that they're sinners? Not only because the Bible says it, but I got to thinking. Here's a few things. First off, they should realize that nearly every piece of legislation that comes from the State House of Indiana or from Congress in Washington, D.C., has grown out of the fact that human beings cannot be trusted to settle their own disputes, their own problems, and their own business dealings with honesty and justice. And that's a fact. I had a businessman standing in my backyard one week ago yesterday. And I said something to him about people telling the truth. And he turned to me and he said, Preacher, nobody tells the truth anymore. At least not to me. I said, what are you saying? He said, I don't believe anybody. And he said, I have been lied to and in my business it's constant. And he said, I don't believe anybody tells the truth. I said, that's sad. That's really sad that you don't trust anybody. He said, no, sir. (laughs) And he put his hand on my shoulder and tapped me. He said, I don't even trust you. And I I, I really, I I felt sort of sick. You know, here's a businessman. And he's saying, I don't trust anybody. I've been lied to so much. People saying they're religious, they go to church on Sunday and they lie to me on Monday. I don't trust them. I don't trust them. And then how could somebody out there deny that we're sinners? That people sin? How could we deny that? I thought further. The doors on our houses and our cars and our sheds are not enough. Now we have to put on locks, deadbolts, and even warning systems. We don't do that for fun. And it's certainly not because it doesn't cost money, but we do it because we can't trust people. Law and order is not enough. 
We have to have police officers who enforce those laws riding up and down our streets, up and down our highways, because they know, as we know, left to himself, man will cheat, he will rob, and he'll even kill if he needs to to get what he wants. How can we dare say we're not sinners? How can we dare say there is no such thing as sin? Silly is the man who makes such a stupid statement. God has declared it clearly. I'm reminded, too, I was reading a book this last week about D.L. Moody. At one time at a church where D.L. Moody was invited to preach, he was warned that some of the congregation usually would leave very near, in fact, before the end of the sermon. That just the people just get up and started heading toward the door. So when Minister Moody went to the church to preach, when he rose to begin his sermon, he announced, he says, I'm going to speak to two classes of people this morning, first to the sinners and then to the saints. So he proceeded the address to the sinners and for a while, and then he said they could leave. And he said, for once in the church's whole history, nobody left the service. Nobody. When I read that, I thought to myself, you see, there's this, it's this thing about us that we just, I, I'm not a sinner. Let me say this to you. It's the same thing as I read this week. There ought to be a day in your life when you know and recognize that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. This uh, came in a book, and in fact, a magazine that I picked up. It said a man was drinking coffee, reading the newspaper, paying no attention to his wife at breakfast one morning. She leaned over, pulled the paper down, looked into his face and said, I bet you don't even remember what day this is. Panic through his whole soul. He thought for a moment... And he quickly tried to cover himself. He says, of course I do. Do you think I could forget a day like this? That day at noon, his wife received a dozen red roses. Later in the day, she received a gorgeous uh, nightgown. Following still later, a large box of chocolate. When the husband came home that evening, there was a soft candlelight glow from the kitchen and the house. The table was beautifully set with white linen, tablecloth, fresh flowers, soft music was playing, and his wife was dressed in, in, in a very nice and romantic way and had a wonderful meal sitting on the table. Afterwards, she came over, gave her husband a wonderful kiss, and said, Sweetheart, I want to thank you for making this the most wonderful Groundhog's Day I have ever had. <laughs> Let me tell you something. You might forget some days, but there ought to be one day that you would never forget. You might not be able to tell me the date on the calendar, but you could know the hour, the time, the moment when you came to understand that you were under the burden and the bondage of corruption and sin. And you would say, I know I'm a sinner, and I know I needed a Savior. And you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope of heaven. There ought to be that day that is absolutely so special to you that you could never forget it. And though you live to be 150, your mind would never skip it. You could always point to it that there was a time in my life where I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and I know for certain, for sure, that if I die today, I'll go to heaven. You see, my concern is that no member of the New Life Baptist Church and no friend of this ministry will die as we all shall, barring the Lord's return, that your body is going to go into corruption and it will just pass back to the dust from which it was taken as it is God's will. But not that you go into that without the absolute assurance that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
reminding you that if you can confess and have confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in your heart that God hath raised him, Jesus Christ, from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Don't, my friend, leave here today and do not die without that absolute essential conviction of heart that Christ is your Savior, your Lord, and you're ready to meet him at any moment, any time, as he chooses. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what the scriptures teach us about sin and its bondage and corruption, its pain, it being a burden. I thank you for reminding us of all that. We need to hear that. We need to be reminded. Oh, we know it, but we so easily forget. We so easily forget all the things that sin does against us and to us, and we so easily think of it in terms of pleasure and fun, when in reality, it's a counterfeit killer. It sells us on one idea and then stabs us with another. So this morning, I pray that you'll make all of us aware here in this auditorium, every person alive and well in this auditorium, you'll make them aware that sin is a killer. It is a corrupter. It corrupts our minds, corrupts our thinking, corrupts our hearts, corrupts our lifestyles. It does everything in a sense of corruption because that's the atmosphere in which it was birthed and born. And so I pray this morning that you would work in our hearts to understand what Paul has written to us here in Romans chapter 8 and help us to understand that this world about us is not going to get any better until our Lord comes back and are delivered. The children of, of, of God are manifested, made to be identified to the world. And then this world is, as it were, delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So I pray that you'll help us to be reminded that you have to accomplish both of those. You have to deliver the sinner into being a believer, a saint of God. And you have to deliver this world, this creation, into that design that it was originally made for. We can't do it. No human can. The smartest scientists we have could not make that dent. So I'm asking you today to remind us of your plan and that there is no plan B. We have to come your way. You are the only way, and I pray that you'll help us to be reminded of it to the point that we'll tell the world the truth, not pacify them with options, making choices like a smorgasbord, but rather to make the choice of one, the Lord Jesus Christ, or to reject him. So this morning, as we close this service and sing an invitation song of Just As I Am, I pray for folks in this auditorium, help every member of the New Life Baptist Church to be certain and sure that they know Christ as Savior. And for those who are guests or visitors with us today, I pray for them likewise, who help them to know this for sure. If they have doubts, help them to come. Give them grace to come and help us to help them to leave here with a certainty and the assurance. Christ is theirs and theirs alone. Bless now the invitation. Bring forth fruit as you've ordained it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Turn to 282 if you need a hymn book. Just as I am without one plea, if God has spoken to your heart about your relationship with the Lord, about your need of salvation or need of baptism as a believer or church membership or just for prayer, whatever your need is, this is the time for you to come. Let us help you, and I'm confident that we can give you the direction that God would be pleased to use in changing you from where you are to where you ought to be. We can't do that, but the Lord can. 
He needs you to come, wants you to come, and invites you to come. So as we sing, you simply comply to that, if you would. 282, verse number 1. Let's sing together, please. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? You've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? And let's sing verse 2. If God has spoken, you come. Thank you very much. Thank you for being with us. May the Lord bless you for doing so, and may he give you safety in getting home and a safe afternoon. And I hope you'll stay healthy and well. Be back with us for the evening service tonight. Brother Byron will open the scriptures to us. Service begins at 6, choir at 5, 5.30 men's prayer. Let me encourage you to remember to pray for upcoming revival, and especially Easter Sunday morning. Pray and pray much for that if you would. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, thank you for the Sunday school hour and the worship service we've been allowed to be in on. We're grateful for the privilege. We thank you for the freedoms we enjoy that makes it possible. And we do today pray that you'll take your word that's been heard in the Sunday school and the worship service now and drive it deep into our hearts. And may we not forget it, but may it dwell in us richly and with the intent to produce fruit and effectiveness and changing our lives from glory to glory as those who know you. And any who do not, I pray that your word would remain alive in their hearts and their conscience and that you would draw upon it often to bring conviction of heart and soul and their need of Christ. Help us to be reminded that this world is a passing place. This is not home. And Father, remind us that this world will indeed pass away and is in the process even now in its corruption. Things that get old and decay and pass off the scene and other things come on the scene. I pray that you'll remind us of that. So help us not to drive our tent stakes too deep into the sands that are so transient in this world. Help us to be reminded that we're on our way, but we're not there yet. Bless, I pray, our evening service, Brother Byram, as he opens the scriptures to us. Speak to us again. Drive our hearts to the truth and help us to be obedient to it. Help us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. And bless those of our fellowship who are sick. Please touch them and heal them and raise them up. Get them back to us very soon. Minister to their needs as they have them even this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. Have a good day, sir.